I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Ian Church. He's assistant professor of philosophy at Hillsdale College and specializes in philosophy of religion. Ian worked on a big project on intellectual humility, which if you search on YouTube, you can find some fun videos of Ian exploring that topic, the science and philosophy of intellectual humility, which is actually very important if you think about it. He also is overseeing a huge grant on the experimental philosophy of religion in which they're doing empirical research um, to test claims in philosophy of religion arguments. And if that sounds confusing, um, I don't blame you. Just listen to the conversation and uh, Ian actually explains it pretty well. We get in the weeds of it a little bit. So if you want to hear about what Ian's doing, keep listening. Enjoy. Do you consider yourself a theologian as well, a philosophical theologian, or are you just straight philosopher? <laughs> I'd consider myself a, a straight philosopher. I okay. um, am interested in theology and, and, and having theological conversations. I wouldn't uh, dare to consider myself a, a, a theologian. All, all my training has been in philosophy. Uh, theology has been something I've been interested in for years and years. And in fact, I started studying philosophy because I thought I wanted to go to seminary, right? Mm -hmm. And so I became a, a Christian when I was 16 years old. And I assumed, I thought that the only way for me to be a good Christian at that point was for me to either be a missionary or a pastor. And given that I am allergic most to most of the outside worlds, I felt like being a missionary in the field probably wasn't in the cards for me. And so I thought I, I should be a pastor. And so I started looking around at, at seminaries and uh, while I was still in high school and just asking them, what do they, what would they recommend I study in preparation for seminary. And one of the things that they recommended very strongly was studying philosophy. And so I started reading up on some philosophy when I was in high school, became increasingly interested in it. And then when I got to college, I, I fell in love with philosophy for its own sake and quickly realized I probably don't have the the right kinds of spiritual gifts to to be a, a pastor. And, and so I felt like I wanted to be an academic and never really look back. That's where we've been. Yeah. So what have been some of those driving questions in your, in your call to philosophy? What keeps you going questions and also just like the practice of teaching and, you know, vocationally and, and imparting philosophical knowledge mm -hmm. and doing philosophical research. What do you want to do in the world? You can take that in yeah. any direction you want. Sure. I mean, so initially I was very interested in, and since I was a fairly new Christian, I was very interested in questions about how do we know there's a God, right? And so standard sort of philosophy of religion, but probably at that stage, I was more interested in, in sort of the apologetics um, side of things than, than the sort of the genuine sort of inquiry that might, might come with philosophy of, of religion. And, and so, you know, I was interested in epistemology very early on, and, and that's still sort of so that's something I've carried with me throughout. Now I'm very interested in questions of rationality, of questions about how can I position myself to be receptive to evidence. A lot of people can talk a big game of pursuing life's big questions, right? And wanting to know, you know, you know the you know the deep questions of of life. But the the worry, the concern we might have is that how often do we approach life's big questions with already an inkling that we know what the big answer is? Okay. And the haunting question, at least haunting for me, can be that is, should I worry that my prior assumptions 
might color my engagement with the evidence that might, you know, everyone might, we might think of evidence as something that's sort of accessible to most everybody, right? So we can have a debate about something and I can point to certain evidence and you can point to evidence. And, but it seems like our prior commitments are going to deeply color what we are going to see. And I see that happening in philosophy. And I've been to more than a few talks within theology to think that something might like something like that might be happening as well in the theological domain. And so, for example, so this is, you know, I'm talking about theology as sort of someone who's heard about it at a conference. So I'm sort of reporting it secondhand. So, so, so buckle up. But I was at, at a conference in St. Andrews and this guy was talking about the influence of Karl Barth and, and subsequent sort of researchers who are trying to sort of march in his footsteps in some ways. And so as I understand it, what, what he what was said there was that Bart prioritized the, you know, the doctrine of God, right? So if you want to understand theology, if you want to develop any sort of systematic theology, you have to come to terms with, engage with, look to first, God is triune, right? Uh, and, and once you have this triune view of God ironed out, then other sort of theological claims can start to come downstream from that. And what, the way this was presented in that talk is that it was almost amusing or terrifying, depending on your bent, I suppose, just how people would take that call. And so what was interesting is that people would say, yes, and amen, we need to start off with this doctrine of God, work from that, and then we can start to develop our other systematic theologies. But wouldn't you know it that you know, most everybody ended up finding what they were already believing to begin with? Right. And so if you come from a high church background, you might look at the Trinity and say, well, look at all this hierarchy in the, in the Trinity, you know, therefore, you know, a couple steps later, we need a, a hierarchical ecclesiology. Right. Or if you're more from a low church background, you might say, well, look at all this equality in the Godhead. And then from that, you know, we can say, look at all this equality within our ecclesiology. And so it almost became a bit of a looking glass. Right. So, you know, yes, we should focus on the Trinity, focus on the Trinity and the Godhead. But it ended up being sort of this mirror that we could point and sort of try to find what we are already wanting to find to begin with. And I find that kind of thing really interesting, but also, you know, it causes me to reflect deeply on my own convictions, because I do have uh, very strong convictions, as I think most everybody does about uh, religion, politics, uh, morality, whatever. But just trying to think deeply about where did those come from and how are those coloring my perceptions of reality and how I position myself to be most receptive to the evidence. And so that's sort of one of the guiding questions that has been sort of carried over with me. I'm interested in virtue epistemology, right? So I'm framing this in terms of cognitive character, what kind of character should I be developing? But I'm also, I mean, this is drawing from a lot of the empirical literature as well, to think about what sort of things do indeed influence my ability to engage with other people, or how might I sort of, sort of close myself off to evidence prematurely and these are things that I think psychology has been enormously beneficial and helpful for me as I'm thinking through these things. Right. So, yeah, in the pursuit of uncovering what's true, there there are, it seems there are layers that are, reminds me of Plinko. I always think of Plinko, <laughs> which yeah. is a game on the price is right. Yes. And then you would drop somewhere along the top, this little like disc, and it would bounce, bounce, <laughs> hitting these little prongs along the way. And yep. those little prongs would determine where it would land at the bottom. And yep. like how a human being takes in knowledge, there's all this subjectivity yeah. from our you know, cultural position and some things about our embodiment and all these things that could um, affect 
I don't know how you would say it exactly, but epistemology, how you know what you know. Right. So I was just trying to give a little button to what everything you just said, but maybe you could say, I mean, it's kind of obvious and you started leaning into it, but maybe you could talk about how you first started to lean into science and getting yeah. into the empirical stuff. Like when did you start to get an inkling that would be important to your philosophical projects? Oh man. I mean, that's kind of a funny uh, story. I mean, it's funny to me anyway, but to both my parents got their PhDs in psychology. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And I still remember growing up and they would bring home you know, games for me to play. And I was, you know, their guinea pig and they would do all these tests on me and things like that. And, you know, long story short, I, I ended up just hating psychology, just hated it. And I didn't like how the, how my parents would occasionally psychologize me and my own behavior and when I had nothing to do with it. Right. And so, and two of my grandparents got their PhDs in psychology as well. So there's sort oh of this gosh. weird <laughs> tradition to, for my family to be plugged into to psychology. And I was going to be the black sheep of the family and study philosophy. Right. And so that's, then wait, that's what I did. Bachelor's, master's, PhD, all going down philosophy. Uh, wasn't, you know, super interested in psychology. My, my, one of my favorite teachers in undergrad was uh, Dr. Tom Foster, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but he was, he was just, like I said, one of my favorites, but he hated psychology. And it was one of his, one of his pastimes to look up, you know, scholarly articles in psychology and point out logical flaws that were in their reasoning. And so he just sort of got a kick out of that. He also didn't like the, the theologians either. He just sort of he was a sort of really, he just, he liked to amuse himself in those kinds of ways. But anyway, he, so I didn't really care that much about psychology, but then, you know, in 2012, I was on the job market and it's, you know, it's just a crazy job market in philosophy. And I saw this opening at Fuller Seminary for a, a position where they wanted someone to provide uh, quote, intellectual leadership to a, a, this big grant competition for this, the science of intellectual humility. And I almost didn't apply to it. One of my good friends was also in LA at the time. And he said, oh, you know, you, you need to apply. It'd be great to sort of see you guys and so on and so forth. So I ended up applying, but I didn't think I had, you know, much of a chance uh, at getting it. And I, did, I just had a lot of cognitive dissonance applying and I trying to understand why would a graduate school of psychology at a seminary want to hire a philosopher? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just trying to sort of see how all these things would, would fit together. <laughs> and so I applied and wouldn't you know it, I got hired. And that's where I met Justin Barrett and got plugged in with him and started having these conversations about how, not only how philosophy might speak into psychology, but how psychology can inform and shape our philosophizing. And as I you know, told Justin before, I think he kind of ruined me for going to philosophy conferences because now I can't help but go to philosophy conferences and think, oh, you know, we can test that. Right? That's something we can empirically evaluate, see if that's actually the case or not. We don't have to yeah. imagine a, a, some sort of thought experiment. We can empirically see if this is going to be the case or not. Uh, we don't have to hypothesize about how cognition works. We can actually look into the literature and see how cognition works. And so I, I mean, to be honest, I absolutely fell in love with psychology and seeing how psychology Dang could, it. I know, and I'm, <laughs> I, I, I am, I don't know what to make of it, but I do just love the psychological literature and, and seeing how that can inform my philosophizing. And, and so I love well, partnering with psychologists and, and all that stuff. So, yeah. Well, I, were your parents clinical psychologists or uh, research folks or kind of both? 
So my mom uh, was doing child growth and development. And so she mm-hmm. worked, she was a professor working at a uh, uh, big state university. My dad was in the, on the clinical side. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. And you, I, you know that your, you now say one of your specializations is philosophy of psychology. Yes. Yeah. What does that mean? And I guess I mean, maybe you talk a little more broadly about philosophy of science too. I actually... Sure. Don't know too much about either of those things, but if you could just say something about that, be primarily what I'm at. I mean, there's a lot of things going on within the, the philosophy of psychology literature and about the sort of the scope and boundaries of psychology. And but my main interest there is how philosophy might be used to shape psychology, and essentially how psychology might inform our philosophizing. And so, you know, it's I think sometimes psychologists might put forward conception. So we want to understand how to promote virtue, right? That's not an uncommon thing for within positive psychology, right? To to think about, well, we have certain virtues, character traits that we would like to promote in people. How do we go about doing that? How can we measure that? And then once you have a measure, then you can go and see if something is effective or not, or not when, and and sort of seeing if that's bringing about some sort of virtue, like intellectual humility. And I think one of the ways that philosophers can help speak into that kind of debate is by sort of trying to develop a, a carefully uh, thought out concept for intellectual humility, right? So I think if we, it's tempting, I think on the clinical side of things to give a very simple definition of, of intellectual humility, because that's easier to, me- to measure, right? And so you might think that maybe intellectual humility, virtue like intellectual humility is going to be primarily understood in terms of the absence of dogmatism, right? That seems fair enough, right? Uh, Surely one of the things we think about when we think about someone who's not intellectually humble is someone who's really dogmatic and arrogant, right? right? And so that's, if you have that sort of binary view, right? You're either intellectually humble or you're not, and you can measure that in terms of levels of dogmatism. Well, now you can start to develop a measure and you're off and running, you can apply that in the clinic and and here you go. But the worry, you know, from from a philosophical perspective is that might be an overly simplistic understanding of the virtue. And that might be sure, really important sure. and worth understanding. I mean, surely it is under worth understanding just when, how dogmatic someone is, and we don't want someone to be sort of overly dogmatic. But I would also caution against thinking that the complete absence of dogmatism is necessarily going to be a good thing, right? So we might imagine someone who's completely intellectually spineless, and they don't have any firm convictions about anything. Well, that's not necessarily a virtuous person either. And mm-hmm. so we want to the virtues are often going to be, in a sort of broadly Aristotelian sense, this virtuous mean, are you trying to ride this line between two vices, right? So if you want to be courageous, well, that's going to be at the mean of something like being foolhardy, where you run into danger all the time, or cowardly, where you never subject yourself to any sort of danger. So it's going to be at this mean, it's complicated. Right. So are bringing to the table some more precision, so that you yeah. don't go off measuring the wrong thing when you go into your experiments and you ask your subjects and questions about, you know, relating to this virtue, you don't go about measuring the wrong thing, the thing that might not be helpful. And the, the philosopher can offer some precision in that. That's the hope anyway. I mean, and and I think part of it is that, you know, and that's not to say you don't do these measures, right? I, I do think we need those measures. I think they're going to be important. It, you know, having a measure for the absence of dogmatism, I think is a really valuable thing. But we can't just equate the absence of dogmatism with a virtue that we then want to promote. I think it's the story has to be more compli- complicated than that. Because if you're sort of developing some sort of education program or whatever that's going to be maximizing the, the absence of dogmatism, 
how are you going to be guarding against the the other type of vice where you just, people are intellectually spineless? And so mm-hmm. we, we need to try to sort of ride that line and figure out what yeah. the virtue is. And that, I, from my perspective, the virtues are going to be complex. Life is messy and that's just life. And that's what we have to deal with. Yeah, it's annoying how complicated everything is. It sure is. Uh, I wonder about gratitude too. I was talking to some folks, actually, you know, Josh Cocaine. And oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to him yesterday. Great. So he's got, oh, great. A, he's got a, a gratitude project he's working on. They're still very early. It's this gratitude to God thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, talking about the the foils of defining gratitude even. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> is it a feeling? Is it a certain set of actions or uh, something in between, a combination? And right. Yeah, that can get very complex. Yeah, and I, I've actually you know been emailing some folks about that. I, I don't do a whole lot of work on gratitude, but I've I've just for me, I mean, from the way I think through these things, I try to think of issues that are sort of paradigmatic examples of gratitude. What strikes me as something that I would call gratitude, right? So, for example, we were visiting Yellowstone, and suddenly realized we we're about to run out of gas, and we're in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and stop at a you know stop at a ranch just to say, is there any gas station nearby? We only have ten miles left on the tank. And the guy said, oh, I've got plenty of gas here. We'll fill you up. And so they filled up my tank. And I said, oh, great, I've got money. I can pay. And they said, nope, you can't pay. What you have to do is try to figure out a way to help other people how we helped you today. Okay, so I walked away from that and, you know, enormously grateful, right? Just incredibly grateful for their kindness and generosity. And, you know, to some extent, I feel like I've, you know, always have this sort of, I, I've tried really hard to help other people. Have I done enough, <laughs> right, to, to sort of, you know, To pay that one off. <laughs> that's right, exactly, right. So, but nevertheless, I was enormously grateful, right? So that's sort of my, I can sort of take that experience, take that thought and think, okay, that's what gratitude is. And there might be ways in which we can think about, you know, how could I, how could gratitude go wrong, right? If I walked away from that scenario and wasn't grateful at all, right, and just thought, sucker, free gas, that wouldn't be good. I wouldn't, we wouldn't want that. Right. Right. Uh, Likewise, if I walked away from that and thought, I need to be this person's, you know, indentured servant for the rest of my life, I pledge my life to that guy and all that kind of stuff. Like, I I could never live this down. Oh, gas is really good. That's really important. But it's not that important. Right. So trying to sort of gauge the appropriate level of response of gratitude to to the to what was given. And part of what I was as I was thinking about it, it seems to me that gratitude is in response to something that is that was needed, right? Something you need. You're, you're not really grateful for something that you don't need. This is one of the weird things about sort of white elephant gift exchanges as a Christmas. You get stuff that you just, what are you going to do with this? Right. But so you're not usually grateful for things you don't need, but so it's something you need and that was made salient to you, right? And so there might be something that was, if you're particularly hungry, well, then food's going to be really quite salient at that point. And so how we judge the sort of appropriateness given this kind of rubric it seems to me it depends on what sort of backdrop you're working from, right? What sort of prior assumptions you're thinking. So, and I'm just, I mean, you probably didn't want to talk about this much about gratitude, but um, just thinking out loud here, we might think that whether or not or when or, or how we might think about gratitude to God would could easily be seen as a, some sort of function of how you think about human nature, right? So if you think that humans are more or less basically good, or to go with the way life is presented with a lot of aspirational television where you don't deserve to pursue the, the right to life, liberty, and happiness, but you deserve, you have the right to be actively happy and, and you know, you sort of make up commercials because you're worth it, right? All this kind of stuff. Right. Right? And well, if you have that kind of attitude, then you getting what 
you know, the, even there might not be as, the same level of gratitude. Whereas if you think that you are a wretched worm, uh, then everything might become more salient and, and you know, grateful for it. And so the, anyway, some of these prior assumptions might, I think, inform when and how we're going to be grateful. And what's true about those prior assumptions might inform what we think is going to be an appropriate level of gratitude. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting questions there that we can yeah, pivot to, but we won't because <laughs> then you, you think about what the, and interacting with theology quite a bit, like how you think about what you deserve as a person yeah. and right. yeah. And how the Christian ought to think of one of themselves humbly and, you know, right. just attitudes towards grace. And yeah, I was, uh, Justin was leading this little workshop at this online event and this, person who was some type of counselor was like, I'm torn because pragmatically, if I tell people they have agency and that they are that they, sort of this humanistic lofty idea of what it means to be human, it yeah. seems it's, it's pragmatically good for them. She's but I'm a Calvinist and right. I'm supposed to tell them that they're totally depraved. So I feel right. <laughs> in conflict. Right. So there's yeah. all sorts of little theological and philosophical issues we could dice up there. Oh, absolutely. No, that's really good. I'll use all of what you just said and I'll edit it out and I'll put it in our gratitude section. <laughs> so that's the glory of editing. Right. Um, I want to pivot back to talking about you know, cognitive bias and just the limits of our rationality and that stuff that, that you're so interested in. And I know you are applying some of those ideas to these perennial sort of problems within philosophy of religion yeah. around God and the existence of God, the hiddenness right. of God and right. the problem of evil and whatnot. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that project. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so the basic idea here for the, the problem of divine hiddenness is that, look, if we would, we typically think of God as being perfectly loving, right? Uh, that seems to be an easy box to, to check. We would want to affirm that God is perfectly loving. And we might think that if God's going to be perfectly loving, then he would want to have a relationship with everyone who's able to have a relationship, right? And, you know, because having a relationship with him is going to be a, a big part of human thriving, we might think, right? I and mean, often we do think that. Uh, but if that's right, that if God is going to be perfectly loving, then that he's going to have this relationship with everyone who, who he can, then it seems like we wouldn't expect to see anybody who is non-culpable or non-resistant in their non-belief. Right? You wouldn't expect to see someone who sincerely and honestly looked into and studied the arguments for and, against, for and against God's existence and just walked away either atheistic or agnostic. You wouldn't expect that to happen. Uh, but wouldn't you know, it sure seems like we there are these people in this world, right? There are people who sincerely and, and honestly inquire into whether or not there is a God and they walk away thinking, no, there's not. Uh, well, that in and of itself, their mere existence seems to pose a serious challenge for theism of this particular sort, right, of a, a traditional brands of theism, that if God's going to be perfectly loving, then we sh shouldn't expect to see these people. We do see these people, so that must mean that either there isn't a God or God's not perfectly loving or something like that, right? And so that that can be, there's different types of uh, arguments from divine hiddenness. This is what, you know, I'm broadly sketching what we might call the evidential problem of divine hiddenness. hiddenness. It's giving us evidence against theism. There's another type of argument, for, you know, another type of divine hiddenness that's very interesting and, and important to me, and this is called the existential problem of divine hiddenness, where, you know, when 
experiencing suffering and loss in this world, the heavens might seem sort of shockingly silent, right? That we might grow, grow up in the faith thinking of God as a, a heavenly father, as uh, someone who is close and personal, right? Personal Jesus and saying, knock and the door shall be open, seek and you shall find, all this kind of stuff. But then we suffer uh, terrible loss. Uh, we're close to people who suffer terrible loss. Yeah. So why would a loving God sort of play hide and seek with us or whatever? Is That's right. And, and it might, metaphysically. And it might not. And the conclusion for so the, the worry with the existential problem of divine hiddenness isn't so much that, well, there is no God, right, from this. Uh, but it's just more of a, you know, what does God care? Right. Is he, I mean, you, you oftentimes end up with feeling, you know, at least in my own experience, feeling as if either God is very close and, and hates me, right? Is that what's going on? This is part of the, the close, silent sort of disapprovals, this punishment, or is God very distant and uncaring? And in neither one of those is a terribly comfortable place uh, to be in, right? So that's the existential problem of divine hiddenness. And I think a, a part, a big part of dealing with that is going to be, have to be pastoral and, and sure. come from counseling as well, and just uh, trying to sort of engage with it. And I think the psychological literature can be enormously helpful in how we might sort of misattribute mental states to the divine. I think that can be a, a big part of this. And, and we might think about how we misattribute mental states to other people all the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the examples that, that I've heard quite a bit and I like to use is that, you know, when driving, I try to do, I try to be a good driver and I try to be courteous and nice to the other people around me. But wouldn't you know it, if someone cuts me off, I assume the worst, right? I assume that they're just a jerk or whatever. And I know full well that sometimes I'll be driving along and I'll forget that this is where I need to get off the highway and or get off the interstate. And so I, I had to sort of sneak in there at the last minute and I sort of give my I'm so sorry wave and, and uh, this kind of stuff. And I know I've got a heart of gold, right? And I didn't mean right. to do that. I didn't mean to sneak in. Right. Uh, but again, if someone does that to me, I, I, it's so easy for me to assume the worst. Well, I think there's reason to think that we do that with gods all the time as well. And so I think the psychological literature can be, be helpful in helping us explore that possibility. One of my favorite examples of that is when I was at doing the theopsych stuff with, remember, the earthquake that hit. Did I tell you about this? So we, you know, we had just put our kids to bed, my wife and I, and, and I was sort of talking to them. And just on a whim, I tend to be an anxious person. And so I said, you know, okay, we're just going to go over earthquake safety, right? We're just going to go, I mean, it, it could happen. So let's talk about earthquake safety. And, you know, so kids, this is what you would do if there's an earthquake, so on and so forth. And by the time we could sort of go over some of these sort of safety tips, I could tell my kids were really anxious, right? They were sort of nervous about this now, and uh, they're my kids. And so they sort of get some of my anxiety, I'm afraid. And so, so we decided, okay, we'll, we'll pray, we'll pray about it. Okay, so we prayed that there wouldn't be an earthquake and all this other stuff. But then, I mean, it was remarkable because five minutes later, the whole earth started shaking, right? Oh and, you know, my kids, they did what they were told. They dove, dove under their beds and stuff like this. But, you know, my, my second son, he thought, you know, is this, is daddy testing us? Is he able to shake the earth somehow? <laughs> but of course, from my perspective, you know, it's, it's so easy for me to immediately think, did I do something wrong? If I just prayed that this wouldn't happen, then it immediately happens. I mean, what are the odds? And so start to really attribute all sorts of uh, mental states to the divine that might not be justified at all, because it wasn't just 
you know, the, our apartment that was shaking, it was all of LA that was shaking. And so it'd be right. how arrogant do I have to be to think that God's going to shake all of LA because I just happened to pray at that moment. And so, but, but regardless, that kind of attributing mental states to the divine uh, and intentionality to the divine, I think that there's a lot of ways that we could look into the psychological literature to help inform when and why that's happening and, and how we often go wrong in those attributions of, of mental states and other people. Mm-hmm. But going back to the, so that's the, the ex, that's existential problem of divine hiddenness. The evidential formulation, well, I've, Dr. Peter Samuelson and I are working on this paper right now, trying to explore whether or not the psychological literature at, at least put some cold water on the evidential problem of divine hiddenness. Because if we say that, okay, if God's perfectly loving, then there will, won't be these people who are non-resistant in their non-belief. There are these people who are non-resistant or non-belief. Therefore, there's not a perfect loving God. That's, again, how the argument's meant to work. Well, we might wonder if the psychological literature causes us to pause, at least, to wonder if it's really the case that anyone is non-resistant in any of their beliefs, right? For atheism or theism or whatever, right? Is it the case that the various heuristics and biases that are so commonplace within our, our own thinking are the way our social situatedness can motivate our reasoning and in how oftentimes, again, you know, we can approach life's big questions in such a way that we already think we know the answer to it. And so, you know, can that all the ways that our own reasoning can be colored by these other influences, might that give us reason to wonder whether or not anybody is ever non-resistant in their non-belief? Is that even a psychological possibility? And so that's what we were sort of raising that question to see if that would be the case. And if that's not the case, then that takes the teeth out of the argument from divine hiddenness to some extent. Yeah. So you're, you are like becoming expert at pointing out some of these assumptions and, and what's the word? <laughs> Premises in, argu- yeah. in these philosophical arguments that are connected to empirical claims and realms of psychology. And you are leading a project, right? Sort of launching this as like a more, like a thing now, right? Like a field, the experimental, the experimental philosophy of religion, right? So, so, so you're getting, I, I, I think this is where you're at in the process, right? You have some other projects that people have applied to be part of the larger project. So these are people asking specific questions that they think have empirically testable premises and whatnot. Do you think you could talk a little bit more about that project and maybe give us some more examples of those empirical touch points and psychology? Happy to. Yeah. So we've got, you know, a part of this project is we're going to fund six quarter million dollar sub grants to explore, sort of take the tools and resources of experimental philosophy, which is going to be drawing from a lot of psychology and cognitive science and bringing them to bear on questions within uh, philosophy of religion. And so these teams are taking them in all sorts of different directions, focusing on the cosmological argument, ontological arguments, arguments from design, all this really uh, and neat stuff and seeing how psychological mechanisms might underwrite and inform our engagement with and, and understanding of those arguments. And let me say a bit more about uh, our own research on the problem of evil, right? Because yeah. uh, that's where I feel like I'd be most able to speak competently. Yeah. So one formulation of the problem of evil would be to say that if there's a God traditionally conceived, then there won't be genuinely pointless suffering, right? Premise one. Premise two, gosh, it sure seems like there's some genuinely pointless suffering in this world. Therefore, there's no God, right? And that's not necessarily meant to be a proof because we might think that 
look, uh, you know, our perception of the pointlessness of suffering might be wrong, right? Uh, something might seem pointless to me, but it might actually have a point. But the way the argument's meant to work is that insofar as a certain bit of suffering seems pointless to me, then that's some evidence for thinking that it is pointless. And insofar as I have some evidence for thinking that it is pointless, well, then that's some evidence against theism. Even if it's not conclusive, it's some evidence accounting against theism of a traditional sort. Well, premise one, that if there's a God, then they're uh, traditionally conceived, then there won't be pointless suffering, is, is going to be pretty broadly accepted. Uh, William Rowe in his 1979 article says that you know, a lot of atheists and Christians alike are going to agree with, with that with that premise. And so the, all the action is falling on that second premise about whether or not there really is uh, genuinely pointless suffering. So why should we think there is genuinely pointless suffering? Well, Roe gives a, a nice uh, little two-sentence vignette, uh, and he has us to imagine a forest fire where a, a fawn is trapped, badly burned, suffers for several days, and then dies. Okay. Sure seems like a pointless bit of suffering, right? And so, in, and again, insofar as that seems like a pointless bit of suffering, that's something that surely has happened in this world. And insofar as that seems like a pointless bit of suffering, then that's some evidence for thinking that it is pointless suffering. And insofar as we have some evidence for thinking that it is suffering, then that's evidence against theism, right? There we go. Well, we might initially wonder, well, what's going on with that, the sort of the, the cognitive psychological mechanisms that are underwriting that kind of thought experiment? Right? So initially, uh, we might think that, boy, how important is it that it's a fawn, right? And then we're talking about this case. This is Bambi, right? This isn't even an adult deer we're talking about. This is a cute little right. baby deer that we're talking about being burned and terribly. And so is that sort of evoking a certain type of empathy in us that makes us less, more inclined to, to sort of feel the pointlessness of the action? Maybe that's what's going on, right? Is, is cuteness what's driving our perceptions of pointlessness? That'd be interesting to explore. Another question that we could ask here from an empirical perspective is, well, this sentence is only this vignette, right? This thought experiment of the fawn is only two sentences long. We're sort of robbed of any sort of context for you know, understanding anything more about the case. If we gave people more just background information about forest fires, would the perception of pointlessness go away, right? So if we had sort of a story about forest fires happen from time to time, they're a natural part of the ecosystem, they re renew the forest in many important ways, da-da-da-da-da. You know, get, get sort of get close to uh, Lion King circle of life kind of stuff. Then you sort of give the, the same vignette word for word. Will people still have this perception of pointlessness? Well, from our research, we've, we've found out that with, if you give people context, the perception of pointlessness almost always goes away. It's quite remarkable just how effective context was at making people no longer think that there's that the target suffering is, is genuinely pointless. Now that doesn't that mean that's really quite interesting I think it doesn't tell us too much one way or another just yet because there's various sort of explanations that are still live options here for for that phenomenon that we saw so we might be and it might very well be the case that part of what's happening here is that humans are pattern loving critters right we love patterns and we love context and we don't like being sort of ambiguous information and so if you give people some prior information about forest fires then maybe it's the case that we are just wired to assume there's some sort of point to that suffering, given that broader context. You know, maybe, if, and even if there is no point, right? Maybe we're just inclined to, to imagine some sort of pattern, some sort of point in that prior information somehow, right? And so maybe we could test this out to see if, we, if you gave people sort of junk context, 
maybe they would imagine a point much more readily than even if there isn't one or has nothing to do with that context. That'd be interesting to see what, if that was what's going on here. But though, you know, and again, we have to see that this would be the case. I, I suspect that's what's perhaps going on here is that we shouldn't be surprised by this result because maybe the point comes in the context. The content, the, the point of whatever suffering we're talking about is going to come from the, the, the broader context of the suffering. And this might say something about why so many people see the world as getting worse and worse. I mean, especially in light of a pandemic, even though on the whole, there's a lot to be thankful for, circling back to gratitude in some ways, right? Yeah. There's a lot of good things, a lot of progress, a lot of improvements in the world that should be celebrated. But nevertheless, we're really inclined to see the world as a really dangerous and wicked place, it seems. Well, that could be because the way that we are often, the way we often learn about the world is via the news, right? And the news is often, I mean, they are driven by by clicks and they're driven by people tuning in. Well, you're not going to tune in for context very often, right? If you want to, if there's a plane crash or whatever, some sort of disaster, you find out it's sort of the voyeuristic, you're looking in to see what's going on with that, whatever disaster is, is occurring, but you don't check in with people a year later, right? There's not any of that sort of broader context that's, that's given. You're sort of this voyeuristic interest in the suffering and the tragedy itself. And it's often not, there's not, it's not possible or viable to provide broader context for that suffering. And then you yeah. cut off, then you cut to a commercial break where you're learning about fabric softener and where you cut to commercials or whatever, right? So yeah. it's a really compartmentalized sort of chunk of suffering. And from this research that we've done so far, we might hypothesize that that, that sort of isolated view of suffering is going to lend itself to a, an increasingly negative view of reality and of whether or not the suffering that people are suffering is genuinely pointless or not. And so anyway, there's some exciting options there. We're just starting to explore that research. Yeah. I'm really excited about it and just thinking about how, what might influence our perceptions of pointlessness when it comes to suffering. This is just where we're at. It's a big one to wrap your head around. And it's such a, you know, it's such an evergreen problem and question. And I'm sort of trying to track with you in the sense that it's, you know, there's the logical problem of evil, but you can't help but think of your own experience of evil and right. suffering. And, you know, I'm going, I'm thinking about what you're you're presenting as a logical argument, but, but you're also, you're sort of including how we feel about it's our perceptions, right? It's yeah. within us. It's our experience and our feelings about evil that we right. bring to right. the logical problem. And it's interesting. And so maybe, you know, presented sort of the research that you're going to do, some folks who think it's an insurmountable issue might right. not think it's an insurmountable right. <laughs> issue, yeah. you know. But it's also the case, you know, and this is another psychological question too, that some people experience a a great amount of suffering in their life and have no problem believing in God. That's right. That's right. And yeah. some people do, right? So, so I mean, that's one of the same question. I mean, that's one of the other things that we're sort of wanting to explore here is that, I mean, the problem of evil has, I mean, it's, you're right. It's always, you know, for as long as people have been thinking about the divine uh, and have suffered, which is forever, people have wondered how these things fit together. And, but really, I mean, in the past hundred years or so within the philosophical literature, the problem of evil has become the central problem facing mm -hmm. theism, right? Right. So like at one point in history, you know, the only way you would know about 
evil and suffering going on someplace else besides where you lived, maybe right. in your own little village, as if someone traveled from another yeah. village and told you some stories about it. Now right. we can learn almost an exhaustive like <laughs> amount yeah. of suffering about the whole world at exactly. any given moment. It's at our fingertips. And there might be, as Justin calls it, the nature niche gap going yep. on with That's our right. nature, just not able to deal with that. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, so now the problem of evil has become sort of this central problem for facing theism right now. Yeah. But, but again, it, it looks as if on average, at least within, you know, in, in, in developed nations, however you want to think of it, there's a lot less suffering going on, right? You know, especially, you know, Western academics, they've, they've got a pretty good life most of the time in many cases, right? Whereas, you know, if I visit a seminary when I was in, in Scotland, the sheer number of children who are in the cemeteries, I mean, just makes my mind real. And I, I can't fathom the, the kind of suffering that people endured just a couple hundred years ago, 100 years ago. And how much that would totally wreck my own faith. And, and so thinking about, you know, what has shifted within our broader culture, with our perspectives, or, you know, what's going on here that is making evil so much more insurmountable in some ways for, for people thinking about the divine right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit of a fun thought experiment. You're like, what other time in history would I live in if I would you know yeah. if i had good time travel or whatever and as a as a woman i know that i'm actually not i'm living in the best time right. period right yeah you know there's not another time period so i would have to remove that element if i really wanted to be like oh no i wish i was like you know in the renaissance or whatever right but yeah, yeah. so it's really interesting and important questions and it'll be so exciting to see what comes out of all this all yeah. this work no i'm excited so any okay i want to speak more generally about doing engagement with science in yeah. general, what are, do you get, okay, first I'll ask, do you get pushback from other colleagues in philosophy? In yeah, uh, sometimes. I mean, just trying to understand, you know, it, what am I doing? Am I, am I doing philosophy? Am I, am I doing some sort of anthropology? How is what I'm doing sort of in, properly understood to be philosophy? philosophy and yeah. And part of what I want to say to that, and what I have, you know, the story I've, I've told some of my colleagues is that, well, this isn't a new thing that I'm doing. Uh, in fact, this is a very old thing. In fact, I think Aristotle would be aghast at the, the possibility of doing philosophy without carefully observing the world, right? We, philosophy has for a long part of, for a tremendous part of the you know, Western philosophical tradition, which is what I know the best, has thought of itself as being closely connected to the sciences. It's only more recently that we have this, this sort of compartmentalized view of philosophy as somehow separated from carefully observing the world. Mm. And so I see what I'm doing as being a very traditional philosophical project and, and consistent with that. And if, we're, if we want to, we can, I think we could place this kind of research within a, a broadly Lockean or, or Humean perspective, getting a bit more technical, I suppose. But, you know, mm -hmm. so the, the way I would frame this, and I'll try to move quickly here, but the early modern period was faced with some serious epistemological questions and a bit of an epistemological crisis. And different people responding to that epistemological crisis in different ways. Descartes decided you know, famously that he's going to doubt everything that can be doubted so as to find something that he can be absolutely certain of and, and work from there, right? 
But the kind of response you get with Locke and Hume is one where you're not sort of wanting to clear the, the slate and, and to and start you know, try to find something, doubt everything that, you can, that can be doubted, but instead it's more of a, a turning inward to try to think about what kind of cognitive critter am I? Uh, what kind of cognitive, you know, do I, what sort of ideas do I actually have access to? Do I, we think, we talk as if we have these sorts of, all sorts of ideas about essences and substances and so on and so forth. Well, do we have those kinds of ideas? Where are those coming from? And I think of both Locke and Hume as doing some sort of proto-psychology for occasionally and trying to get us to think deeply on, on how our cognition works and, and how we are inclined to think about things and use that to, to guide our discussions as we work our way through an epistemic crisis. I would think, right, I mean, I, I would make the case that right now, in the United States anyway, we are in a bit of an epistemic crisis. All the conspiracy theories that are absolutely everywhere and the way you can surround yourself with like-minded people online easily, this is, from an epistemological perspective, deeply troubling. Yeah. And, well maybe we need to think deeply about the kind of cognitive critters that we are uh, and how we're going to engage with information that's around us. And that sort of takes us back to one of my starting sort of questions is, you know, how do we develop, what kind of cognitive character is going to be best situated to, to see and engage with the evidence? And that's sort of one of the, the, the questions that I'm really wanting to pursue in all this. What sort of challenges have you found in engaging science or have, has it all been pretty well because you had a good mentor, a good guide? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, so that I, I have had an enormous uh, amount of a head start just being able to engage with someone like, like Justin, who is, is such a great interlocutor and, and bringing together philosophy and, and psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, cognitive science. But, you know, one of the biggest struggles is that I'm still not a psychologist, right? I'm not trained in that. And I, I am very interested in that literature. But I, you know, there are times where I'm, it's very clear to me that I'm a, a, an outsider and trying to understand the kinds of games that they're playing. There's a certain kind of language, a certain type of game that's being used in that field that I sort of have to sort of stumble along and try to figure out that what moves are being made and why. And so with some of these research grants, I've really enjoyed being able to collaborate with psychologists to, to, you know, we can serve as translators for each other because philosophers are, let's be honest, weird. And that's, you know, <laughs> there, can be, there can be some translation work that goes from the philosophical perspective, trying to speak into the sciences, but also trying to translate what the long and the short of the psychological and the scientific literature is going to be. So having partnerships has been enormously helpful. And, and knowing people who are in other disciplines who I can know and trust and engage with and speak to has been really essential for my work. Because sometimes I'll engage with someone who is just a thoroughgoingly into the psychological literature, and it's really hard to know what they're saying when they say what they say. Uh, right. And so I need yeah. these, these translators in my life, people, people I can partner with to work with. Yeah, that's in having these conversations. It's a it's an ongoing theme that getting through the literature can be tough because of terminology and just different speaking different languages from different disciplines so yeah having a relationship or a few relationships with someone who can kind of partner with you and understanding it seems to be invaluable and again this takes i mean we're, we're it's circling back to this idea of you know, misattribution of mental states right? It's really easy, right? And I think it's really common for people to read things from other disciplines and assume the worst. Oh, they didn't, they don't understand this, right? They're missed. They're sort of hopelessly assuming yeah. some sort of 
you know, that's assuming some sort of perspective that's obviously absurd from my discipline's perspective, and so I don't need to take them seriously. Well, again, if, we're no, if we don't know what the other person is saying, really, if there's this translation problem, then that's, that, there's a real danger for misattributing, mis, misunderstanding what the other person is actually saying and what they're trying to do. And, you know, I think it's sometimes theologians might worry that psycholo- psychologists are trying to encroach on the domain of theology and sort of speak into and shape the theology in a way that, they, that theologians might see as incredibly dangerous or naive. When I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case, maybe sometimes it is, but not always. And we need to be very careful not to misread what other people are saying uh, and attribute, you know, the worst kind of, of attitudes and mental states on the people when that might not be justified. Yeah. Any other advice for those maybe more theologically minded or in your context, do you have pushback from theologians or like people, I guess, Christian pushback is what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> to, sure. to science engagement. Is it more about that, what you were just saying, just that that fear of, hey, this is the domain of faith, this is the domain of theology, and, and you know, don't come in here? <laughs> yeah, right. Gosh, I mean, I do think... I think you uh, said in, in one of your survey answers, you talked about some folks who sort of worry that you're on some kind of slippery slope with science, and right. maybe I'm just asking you to flesh that out a little bit. Yeah, I don't think that... I mean, not asking you to like talk crap on anybody. <laughs> sure. And, and, and I don't think that, well, let me, so I think one of the best things we can do is just try to develop those relationships with people in other fields and not to just assume that we know what is going on in the other fields or assume what's going on in some of the, the literature if we ourselves are not experts in that area. I think there's a value to expertise. And I think there is uh, something that really important that comes with engaging with someone who's genuinely an expert. And I think there needs to be a, a time and a place to to recognize our own limitations. And so we might sort of want to hold a certain theological line, right? Absolutely. But if you see a psychological sort of study or scientific work that seems like it's encroaching, it might be best instead of just sort of casting that out and saying that's obviously absurd. That's obviously coming from a an atheistic, naturalistic, whatever perspective, a, ho- a hostile perspective. Withhold judgment on that. Yeah. And yeah. until you can talk, find someone who's able to, you know, you trust who you can, who you can help you understand what's going on and what moves are being made here and what sort of assumptions are being made and yeah. what, what sort of claims are absolutely not being made. All of that needs to be to occur, I think, and that we need to not jump the gun and assume the worst in the sciences and that it's going to be trying to overreach. And there's, I mean, that does happen, right? There, there are cases where, you know, if you're sort of a strict science, you know, advocate of scientism, right, where you think science can answer all of, all of life questions. And, sure. and yes, we need to watch out for that. And yes, we need to avoid that. But that's, I think there's a, a lot of benefits between being a sort of thinking that science can answer all your questions and, and or sort of completely isolating yourself from science. I think that there's a rich middle ground of dialogue and engagement. That's what we need to try to pursue. That's awesome. And thank you so much for giving me this amount of your day and time. It was so so much good stuff. To, Thanks so much for, for to talking utilize. to me. I really appreciate you, you having me on to, to talk. This podcast is brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion. <laughs>